My drag name would be Anastasia Toliopoulos. Okay, and why is that? It's my mum's name. (laughs) Hello, my name is Alexi Toliopoulos. And my name is Susie Youssef. This is the Big Film Buffet. Where we serve up a three-course feast of movies inspired by today's film. The Boys in the Band. We'll begin each week the way that you do a good meal, with a classic starter to prepare the palate for our film du jour. We'll have our plates cleared in time for the main course of Netflix's premiere feature. And for dessert, we'll tease your taste buds with a sweet coda of recommendations. I love that we start so heavy with the food puns right at the <laughs> Every top. time. But we have to be clear, this is not a food podcast. Not about food. This is about cinema. Except that every time we start the podcast, we start thinking about food, so we should just get it out of the way. <laughs> yeah, what were you eating? What were you cooking this weekend? Okay, so I attempted a lamb shoulder this week. <gasps> Took a lot longer than I thought it would, but it did taste excellent. How long are we talking? At first I thought it would be like an hour, an hour and a half. No, no, no. big piece. No, it took me about three and a half hours. <laughs> yeah. okay. Minimum three and a half hours. I'm obsessive roasts. Oh, are you I, good at them? I am good at them. I bought myself a turkey baster to do roasts. Oh. And let me tell you, it's one of the greatest investments I've ever made in my entire <laughs> life. Nothing gives me more pleasure, more joy, more satisfaction than creeping down next to the oven, getting that baster out, suctioning up all that runoff liquid and then squeezing it ever so delicately back on top. Were you roasting turkeys this week or what were we, no, we cooking? No turkeys. It's just no whatever tur- I'm roasting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just gives me an excuse to pop down. I did a chicken. You did a chicken? I butterfly a chicken. Nice. And that's what I was doing. But I also, my big adventure, I made spanakopita. Oh, wow. How did it go? It was great. I used the family recipe. Did you see how excited I just got at the yeah. thought of spending coffee? <laughs> you thought I brought it with me, didn't you? Yeah, a little bit of well, I, I froze a lot of it, so next time it'll be still ready. Okay, we've got it out of our system now. We're not going to talk about food. This is a podcast about movies, so let's <laughs> listen to the trailer of the week. Load up that trailer and press play, maestro. Michael, that's you. Press play. Oh, and you, Donald, you think it's just nifty how I've always flitted from Beverly Hills to Rome to Amsterdam. I'm here to tell you, the only place that I've ever been happy was on the goddamn plane. Run, charge, run, buy, borrow, make, spend, run, squander, run, beg, run, 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 waste, waste, waste. And why? Same old tired fairies you've seen around since day one. This is gonna be fun. This old college friend of mine is in town, but he's straight, so... Do you really think he doesn't know about you? Emery, no. I couldn't care less what people do as long as they don't do it in public. It's the delivery boy from the bakery. Ask him if he's got any hot cross buns! (laughs) Where the hell could Harold be? Happy birthday. You're late. Oh, Michael, you kill me. When he's sober, he's dangerous. When he drinks, he's lethal. That's your surprise. Hey, everybody. Game time. We all have to call the one person we truly believe we have loved. My God, Michael, you're a charming host. 
this was one of my most anticipated movies of the year. And honestly, in this year, when it felt like I'd miss out on all the movies I was excited for, it genuinely feels surreal that I've already seen this now. It's so good. From the very first moment of this trailer, you hear that ticking clock going, it's building tension, Ooh. and you get a little bit of a glimpse into that sort of like cinematic pressure cooker that this film is. Mm. I was glued to the screen, like basically holding my breath in moments during this film. I was bracing for impact at every turn. Ooh. It was so full on. I'm so glad you loved it. I think that's the key to this film is that like there are moments that are really fun, but yep. it's all about that escalating tension that keeps building. And it's in a very real and exciting yet theatrical way. When we watch these trailers, I like thinking about the expectations that it sets up for you. What did you feel watching this trailer? I didn't know very much about this story before I saw the film. So I knew that it was a play beforehand, but I wasn't 100% sure about the content. So the trailer made me think, is this a horror or a murder mystery? Like something big is going to happen. There was going to be a big reveal. I could feel that. But it also had like a bit of a rom-com feel, maybe a bit of a friend drama feel mm. to it. Who knows? Yeah, it does have a bit of a whodunit vibe. That's part of the movie that there's this game being played in like this almost like theatrical chamber-like setting, like those classic Agatha Christie type things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it is kind of all of those things and none of those things mm. at the same time. It's really fabulous. I can't wait to talk about it. But before we do, why don't we start our feast off? This week's feast is not really genre-based. It's more a category of queer films and queer cinema that we're going to be exploring in this cinematic degustation this week. I get really excited when I get the chance to talk about queer cinema and queer art because it's interesting when we have like these examples that I think and hope Boys in the Band will be... Where they start kind of breaking into the mainstream. Yeah. And there are these classic examples of that, but then there are so many more that are like these beautiful, obscure cinematic hidden gems. To start this meal, there was nothing that excited me more than bringing to the table one of the most classic pieces of queer art that Australia has ever produced. The film we're going to talk about today really put this 90s new wave of Australian independent quirky comedy drama cinema on that map in that world scale. The movie is... The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. To travel to the centre of Australia, climb King's Canyon as a queen, in a full-length Gautier sequin, heels and a tiara. The Australian road movie classic where two drag queens and a transgender woman travel from Sydney to Alice Springs in a bus named Priscilla. And along the way, they are faced with resistance both off and on the bus. Yes, they are. For both of us, this was the most obvious choice because it's one of the biggest queer films to break into the mainstream, both in Australia and overseas. Mm. And I think it's another great example of this kind of film where tension is building in an environment that looks really fun and yes. colourful, but that the humour in the film is kind of swinging between witty and sharp and bitey and then like to, it swings back to like very cutting and dark. And it does that so quickly. Yeah, I, I really do love this movie. It had been a long time since I'd gone back to watching it and... I loved how much this film surprised me still. Oh, it surprised me so much that I was like, did I even watch this film before? Like, I know that I've seen it before, but there were so many scenes that just came out and I was like, oh, I don't remember that happening. Yeah, that's uh, ping pong stuff. Was that in the cut that I saw originally? <laughs> or did they add this in for a special that. director's version? Another thing that I discovered for the first time mm -hmm. is that Margaret Pomerantz is in this film. Yes, she has a small little cameo playing Guy Pearce's mother. You, she doesn't have any lines, but you just see her for a moment. And I knew immediately I know that hair I know those earrings dangling <laughs> by it and I was like that's Margaret I got so excited one of my heroes one of my all-time heroes 
So what surprised you about watching it this time around? There is a moment in this film that uses my favourite, favourite cinematic technique, which I am obsessed with. So when it came up, I was so excited because it uses this technique called the split diopter. I have which... no idea what that is. <laughs> Let me explain it to you then. Um, it's basically a, a technique where you can have multiple focus points on the same shot. So someone in the foreground will be in focus, but then you can have something in the background in focus as well. Okay, so give me an example in the film. So in the film there's one that is just so well done and so exciting and kind of subtle where it is Guy Pierce driving the bus yep. and that's in focus. And then we've got in the background, we've got Hugo Weaving and Terence Stamp in focus as well. It's an interesting thing of storytelling where you know that you should be looking at everything and paying attention to oh, everything. Okay. And the way they do it, it's kind of like um, bifocal glasses. Like I remember my grandma had those glasses <laughs> with like a little magnifying point in them. Yeah, and yeah. that's so you can have the way they have it is it's like a special lens that goes on the camera that's got one little extra sheet of convex glass that allows the focus to change and to just have two different points of focus and I just love it. It's my favourite cinematic technique. It always looks so cool. I think in a movie like this it really works for creating the idea of space and because that bus is such like a beautiful space as production designed by Owen Patterson and Colin Gibson, it creates like the idea of geography within that area and I think it's just, it's so stunningly done. I love that I'm learning something as we're doing this podcast. (laughs) My dream is to become a film lecturer and this is how I'm going to do instead of studying teaching as a degree. I will happily be your first student. (laughs) I think one of the other things I just really love about this movie and I think why it holds like a special place is because it is such a great portrayal of performers and what it is like to be a performer when you're on stage and what it's like to be a performer when you're not on stage. Yeah, and touring that whole life of packing and unpacking and preparing and nerves and anticipation of meeting a new audience, all of that. I definitely felt it. And as someone who has toured quite a bit in their life, (laughs) um, it was definitely triggering at moments. But it it made me think of all the time that I've spent on planes in the last few years. Not Mm, not recently. (laughs) Um, But I, I kept getting closer and closer to getting gold status and just missing out. I know it's not the most important thing in the world, but once you start chasing those status Mm. credits and you start chasing those points, it's really hard to stop. It became (laughs) quite an obsession for me. And because I kept missing out, I was like, you know, this has inspired for me a drag king name. Oh, really? Yes. So I've already got the aesthetic. I always wanted to do something kind of a bit high status, Mm -hmm. um, something with a a large moustache because I've I've mastered that in the past in previous roles. (laughs) Uh, So I thought I'll I'll get something with hats and shoulder pads. A little Sergeant Peppers is what I'm picturing. Yep. You're on the right track. And so I thought my drag king name would be General Boarding. Oh, I can see it right now. Yeah, it's painful, but it's also very true. (laughs) I know there's some kind of formula to creating a drag name, but I'm not exactly sure what it is anymore. So do you have a drag name? I've thought about it and I've come to the one conclusion and my drag name would be Anastasia Toliopoulos. Okay, and why is that? It's my mum's name. <laughs> I think it would be the best way to honour her. I think that's beautiful. In that case, my great name would be Sailor Musa. <laughs> I did mention that it's in 1994, and I have to tell you that I did go a little bit beautiful mind mm. on this at one point. 
<laughs> oh my god, this is this so is nuts. great to see someone it's else so lose nuts. their mind like so this. I'm not very good at maths, but my mind sometimes goes into this weird space where I'm constantly adding and subtracting and trying to find number patterns. Where my everything. eyes roll into the back of my head and I go into a trance. So because Priscilla was made in 1994, mm-hmm. it made me think. You look so embarrassed I right know, now. I'm so, I, my whole face is burning up. Boys in the Band was remade this year, so mm-hmm. 2020, which is 26 years after 1994. Yes. 26 years before 1994 is 1968, which is when the first version of this play is set and made. You've got the number 26 written all over your face, your body, your hands. Is there any point to this? Not really. But it did make me think that it was pretty staggering how much the (laughs) themes and the emotions resonated throughout all Mm. of those 52 years between 1968 and 2020. Truly, that's a good point. I think I've scared you. I am a little scared. (laughs) It also excites me. Because I like to be scared. (laughs) (laughs) This brings us to the premiere flick of the week, which is The Boys in the Band. Oof, I'm going to tie up my beard because I am ready to tuck into this one. The blurb that Netflix provides goes as follows. At a birthday party in 1968, New York, a surprise guest and a drunken game leave seven gay friends reckoning with unspoken feelings and buried truths. And saucy already. What this film does that excites me so much is it's based on a classic play, uh, but I think it really rides that line between being cinematic and being theatrical in a way that I find very satisfying. Yes, and you can see this in the set design. So it was a play and then it very much feels like it continues to be a play in parts, but it doesn't get that kind of claustrophobic New York apartment feel to it, even though that's where most of the film is set. It has flashbacks. It has a lot of mirrors. The set Mm. is so beautiful and the way this is filmed is so beautiful. But it just kind of moves in and out of this tiny apartment in a way that doesn't make you feel cramped in any way. Unless it's when it means you to feel cramped. Yeah, yeah, it's very deliberate. When it has those moments of claustrophobia, I think it really works in escalating that tension. This is a kind of theatrical adaptation that I really like. Yeah. Where it does honour that classic text, which I'm familiar with. I read it back in uni when I was studying theatre. Oh, okay. So did you study it? I didn't study it, but a lecturer recommended it to me because I like the idea of drama and, like, tragedies that have, like, funny characters and funny cast because I thought it was, like, a great way to find, like, a more true-to-life tone. Yep. They were like, you got to read this. You'll love it. And I read it and I loved it, but I wish they had just said, you're probably queer, you should read this. <laughs> Would have saved me a few years of questioning myself. Well, there you go. But I love this play and there's also a great adaptation of it from the 19. 19- 70s. I think exactly 1970, actually. And it's directed by William Friedkin, yep. who is one of the great masters of cinema who would go on to do The French Connection right after this and The Exorcist right after that. Oh, so gosh. it's kind of like this little landmark queer cinema blip because it is the first time a fairly mainstream-ish movie was all about queer culture and gay characters. And it was being driven by an entirely openly gay cast and production team. Yeah, pretty much. And sadly, the original cast of the 1970s adaptation are largely unknown, not only because of the AIDS crisis where some of them lost their lives, but because they lived their lives as openly gay men and were largely ignored by Hollywood because of that. And considering how far we've come, even though sometimes we take it for granted that this new adaptation now stars these openly gay actors that are some of the biggest stars in the world in TV and cinema right now. 
So this is the entire Broadway revival cast. I was very keen to see that Broadway revival of this play. And now that we're getting a great translation of it that stars Jim Parsons, Zachary Quinto, Matt Bomer, Andrew Rannells and everyone else in that film. That's why I was so excited for this because that very rarely happens. Oh, it, it actually never happens. <laughs> I actually cannot think of another version no. where that's ever happened. If you're ever in a play and then it becomes a movie, everyone's like, we're going to be famous. Then they're like, nope, see ya, like, and you're out. <laughs> Sorry, Susie, we've got John Travolta replacing you in this version. <laughs> it's, in a way, honouring the past, like this great work and the great work of these actors and honouring and cherishing their memory by having like these big, openly gay megastars in these roles now. I, th- I, yeah, I find it, that very moving. It does, because it, it feels like they're honouring the cast that came before them by, mm. by making this the brilliant film that it is. So this film is directed by Joe Mantello, who's a great actor, especially on Broadway, been in lots of iconic things, but he directed the theatrical revival of this. Yep. And that's another rare thing that never happens, the theatrical director coming to direct the feature film. Yeah. And also it's produced by Ryan Murphy and David Stone, who are super producers. This team works so well with each other. Like, and every single piece of this film kind of fits together in a way that could have gone into an awkward space but absolutely doesn't. Like, mm. there's, a, there's a moment where four of the characters kind of get up and do a little dance scene and, like, oh. if that's not done well, you go, oh, gosh, they've just tried to shoehorn another dance scene into yeah. the movie. But it's just they look like a bunch of friends mm. who have done this Every single weekend, they're always mucking around with each other. They're always having these lavish dinner parties. Yeah. I mean, there's even this really gorgeous moment where Charlie Carver's character, the cowboy, is just like innocently eating dinner. And it's a lasagna that's been prepared by one of the other characters and he's never eaten it before. And I think it shows like the naivete of this country mouse coming into the city as like this midnight cowboy-esque character. And he describes it as... Spaghetti and meatballs sort of flattened out. It just breaks your heart. It just got me thinking, like, how could you weirdly describe any other ethnic food? <laughs> it would be like if I served someone spanakopita and I was like, oh, this tastes quite nice. It's like <laughs> if you got a chocolate croissant and took the chocolate out and put grass and cheese inside. It's quite lovely, actually. It's a perfect description. <laughs> One of the things I loved about this adaptation that I think makes it so cinematic because it's an invention for this filmed version is a lot of the action of this film is set around this telephone game where yeah. they are calling this terrifying up. telephone game. <laughs> really, it's, it's really, really tense. And there's this beautiful moment where they each have to call someone that they've loved in the past and, like, profess their love to them. And in this filmed version, they have these really poetic and cinematic flashbacks mm. to the moments they shared with those people. And I think the most successful one in capturing that emotional feeling is this flashback with the character Bernard played by Michael Benjamin oh, Washington. This breaks my heart. It's so beautiful because it's like this blue moonlight kind of cinematography mm. of him and this other young man like nude swimming in this pool. Yeah. I think it captures like just like the essence of either first love or first attraction and those like important feelings that are so universal. We went swimming in the nude, in the dark, only the moon reflecting the water. How romantic. And the next morning you took him as coffee and Alka-Seltzer on a tray.
it's quite a quick flashback, mm. but what it does is because they've interspersed the film that is mostly set in that one room with these flashbacks, the world feels so much bigger and it yeah. feels like it spreads across time. So mm. you've got this timeline that goes from their childhood to their future. It's just so well done. I think it's a great way to take this text and while still being very faithful to it being a play and mm. capturing that beautiful staging and blocking that they would have done countless times on stage yeah. and elevating to that cinematic level. The thing that is terrifying about this game that they play mm. is that if I was ever at a party and someone said to me, we're going to play a game where you have to, and we're a few gins in, by the way, <laughs> we're going to play a game where we call the person that you love that you may not have declared that love to. Oof. If someone asked you that question, what would you even say? Oh, um, I'm actually very open. I tell everyone that I love them. Yeah. I think when I said goodbye to you last week, I said, love ya, and then walked off. <laughs> you definitely did. You definitely <laughs> so did. I guess there's no one that I could call. No, but I, I could think of a bunch of people, but I'm not playing that game. Mm. If that game gets brought up at a party, I'm leaving that party <laughs> immediately. That's the difference between you and I is like, I just try and find someone that I haven't said it to yet, <laughs> and you're and too I'm not scared. Anyone. <laughs> I don't like those parties in general. Like, mm. if someone says, says, oh, we're having a games night, Ugh. I will find a way not to go to that party. But no. if the games organically happens, yes. I'm fine with it. That idea of planned fun, I cannot stand. No, not into it. Yeah, and it captures like this increasingly manic feeling of a dinner party going wrong, kind of like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf as oh, well. kind of like any dinner party I've ever <laughs> been to in my whole life. <laughs> kind of any play, really. <laughs> uh, it is, it's just this masterclass of like creating tension and capturing that kind of hostility that happens when mm. you've got a bunch of old friends who are catching up and it seems harmless. Yes. But then alcohol gets into the mix and all of that tension just starts to simmer because there's this misconception that they're the closest people in the world. Mm. Really, they're the most dangerous people in the world yeah. because they know which buttons to push. Exactly. Jim Parsons really captures this so well. And like, yeah. it's a lead performance, but this is such a true ensemble film. Yeah. He announces very early on in the film that he's off the source. He's no longer drinking. Which is almost an invitation yes. for the tension of the film to build to the point of him drinking. It's basically Chekhov's gun being shown <laughs> at the start of the film. And so there's a moment where you see him lift that glass to his mouth and then his energy changes where he becomes the antagonistic character of this film. Oh, yeah. All bets are off at that point. But even though he's the lead character, we're waiting the whole time for the character of Harold to arrive because it's Harold's birthday party, mm. right? So Zachary Quinto, who is phenomenal in this movie, yeah, we're just waiting for that moment where he enters the room. And everything changes when he arrives as well. It's such a big, big moment when he arrives. It's like if Waiting for Godot had Godot actually arrive halfway through. <laughs> and then we got another half an hour of the film <laughs> after that. And Godot is cool, amazing and exciting. Great shoot. Smokes a lot. <laughs> speaks slowly. Beautiful neckerchief, sunglasses <laughs> on inside at night. Life is a goddamned laugh riot. You remember life. You're stoned. Happy birthday, Harold. You're stoned and you're late. You were supposed to arrive at this location at approximately 8.30-9 o'clock. What I am, Michael, is a 32-year-old, ugly, pockmarked Jew fairy. And if it takes me a while to pull myself together, and if I smoke a little grass before I can get up the nerve to show this face to the world, then it's nobody's goddamn business but my own. 
And I love this performance. I think Zachary Quinto is perfect as Harold. Every single line, you're just waiting mm. for like the penny to drop on whatever's going to happen. Yeah, it's. Oh, I like that this film is all about these friends, but each of them takes turn in being antagonizing towards each other in that way that just feels so real and so natural, like it speaks to a true life experience. Totally. The other performance that I really liked, and I know that you loved as well, is the character of Emery, played by Robin de Jesus. Oh, he's so beautiful. The character of Emery was like a lot of humour and relief mm. for the play, but also built a lot of tension because the more camp that you are in 1968, the more dangerous it is to exist. Yeah, and I think the way that he does it is he is able to like capture the essence of people that are naturally camp in the real world yeah, totally. and translate that to the screen in a way that doesn't feel as heightened as the other performances in this film, which are like big capital A acting. Yeah. He's able yeah. to bring a nuance to a character that is otherwise the most heightened in the reality of the film. And at the same time, it was kind of heartbreaking mm. because you know that he's towing a line that feels quite dangerous. Yeah, I really hope that this is a breakout movie performance for him because he's found a lot of success on Broadway and on stage. Fabulous screen actor as well. I hope to see more from him. Me too. Speaking about simmering tensions, short of knocking on the glass, producer <laughs> Michael has something to say on this reel and we knew it would happen. So just come in here, Michael, and tell us what you think. Come on. <laughs> okay, producer Michael has arrived. He has a chair, he has a microphone, and he definitely has something to say. And Michael is one of my favourite film buffs, so I cannot wait to hear your thoughts oh, on I this. Oh, I will go one step further and say he is my favourite <laughs> film. No, you're equal. You're equal. Okay, oh, look, you. I'm hot in the face. I'm flushed. <laughs> one thing I loved about this film, though, is that it was so accurate in its depiction of... Honestly, what a queer social gathering is really like. <laughs> when I watched the film, I was like, this is what me and my friends really are like. This idea of the queer drama and mm. the gossip and the simmering tension, slowly building and building, and it's like all fun and games until it's not, right? Mm. But I think looking at it from the angle of the fact that it is a period film, yeah. and I think yeah. often in period films you have two types. You have the type where you're meant to watch it and realise just how much we've changed. You oh, watch yeah. it. And I don't like, like this anymore. Exactly. Yeah. It's like a movie that's set in maybe the 1800s and you're like, those values are so outdated. <laughs> yeah. And then you have this other type of period film where you watch it and you realise that some values really are quote-unquote universal. Maybe there is one singular human experience after all. So you can relate to those characters. Because obviously this is a movie that's set... Before the 80s, mm. it shows us a very different side of the queer film and the queer experience where it's not necessarily defined on screen by death and doom and gloom. Mm. But at the same time, you still get this sense of queer repression that comes through in this movie that is still very relevant in 2020. Absolutely. We see a character like Jim Parsons Michael go through internalised homophobia mm. and Catholic guilt. And I think that is something that is unfortunately still part of the queer experience is learning to deal with guilt and learning to deal with self-hatred and learning to deal with that through perhaps a facade. Mm. So who do you think watches this film and enjoys it besides everyone? Obviously it's a must-watch for any queer viewer, I'd mm. say, but it's also just 
a really beautiful, tender experience. And I think it honours the theatrical side as well. So I think if you loved the play, you're still going to love this movie. And also on something that Michael said before that so many of like the big films of queer cinema that break into the mainstream, they do have to be representative in this way or feel the need to, and they do lean on that tragedy. Someone dies at the end, whether they're murdered or what. It's not nice, whereas I think that this is a rare example of a mainstream queer film that does not have that aspect to it. Or does it? No spoilers. (laughs) Well, yeah, no spoilers, but no, it doesn't. (laughs) Follow The Big Film Buffet on Spotify to get new episodes as soon as they come out every single Tuesday and comment wherever you get your podcasts. And for goodness sake, tell your friends, okay? Podcasts live on word of mouth. All right, it is time for us to cleanse our palates by playing the world's newest and most favourite game, film or movie. Where producer Michael gives us the title of a motion picture Mm -hmm. and Alexi and I decide whether it's a film, which is... Artistic, beauty, thematic, cinematic, poetic. Or a movie. Which is nice, popcorn, comfortable, fun. Still great. Still, I mean, they're both great. They're two of my favourite things in the world. So, producer Michael, what is our motion picture for the week? The Screen Delight this week is an iconic movie that also stars Matt Bomar. It's Magic Mike. (gasps) Magical Michael himself gives us the title Magic Mike. And I think this is a classic film or movie because it is often debated whether it's a film or a movie. What do you think, Alexi? I have to go this is Film. Wow. This is Steven Soderbergh, one of the great artistic American auteurs, coming back with a classic that harkens back to the musical motion pictures, films of the past from the MGM classic era. This is song. This is dance. This is the magic of the films, not movies. Okay, and I'm going to say Channing... Tatum. Mm-hmm. This is a movie. Okay, yes. It's hard to argue <laughs> with that. Why else do you think it's a movie? Uh, well, for the same for the same reasons that you think it is a film, mm-hmm. it is song, it is dance, I think that this is Big Bucks, Hot Bods, movie yeah. magic. And this time the Bucks are handsome little fellas. <laughs> <laughs> so, producer Michael, what do you think? I'm going to say it's a movie. Oh, Purely because of the quota of hot bods mm. in this motion picture. Yeah, You're this right, is, <laughs> This is more than the Avengers when it comes to hot man bods. <laughs> Which brings us neatly to dessert. So obviously after hearing that, you're going to want more. So it's time for the sweet recommendation of the week. Let's open up the curtain and take a look at our beauties. Let's hear it for them. The Queen is a 1968 documentary, which is the very same year that the original Boys in the Band play was produced. It's true, but this is a documentary about the 1967 Miss All-American Camp Beauty pageant run by a drag queen called Flawless Sabrina. It's directed by Frank Simon and it only runs for about a little bit more than an hour. I think it's 68 minutes. It's a very watchable short documentary and queer cinema is really important to us here on the podcast, but shamefully, unlike Priscilla, a lot of films don't break through to the mainstream and remain a bit obscure and hard to track down and watch. So I really want to recommend something that while still being a bit of an obscure landmark classic, 
it was one that anyone could find on Netflix. And The Queen is on Netflix. So it's a documentary film from the same pre-Stonewall riots era of New York as Boys in the Band. It's pretty surreal watching it right after Boys in the totally. Band. Because it literally is the same world. And yeah, people it, are wearing the identical costumes of everyone. It's incredible. It confirms our feelings towards Boys in the Band that it's such an authentic representation of that mm. time because this is an actual time capsule. So The Queen shows us this kind of very rare backstage behind the scenes look into the drag world and the queer world of the late 60s Mm. in New York. It was prescient. And I think that there's an iconic moment in this movie, the end, where Crystal LaBeija, who's like this iconic figure of the underground drag balls in America, in New York City, just basically loses this competition and then storms storms out. out And it has this incredible monologue talking about how none of the true beauties are the winners. And it's like, it's incredible. It's kind of unexpected because you don't think that there's going to be this storm out. It's such a warm environment beforehand. Everyone's helping each other out backstage. Anyway, it's gorgeous. You couldn't have scripted something like this. It's so incredible. As always, we want to leave you with a few extra little recommendations. Yeah, a petite four, if you will. Yes. Uh, for Power in Community, you can check out BPM, which is a great French film. Uh, for queer pop culture references, I love this movie. It's like my top ten films of all time. The Watermelon Woman, directed by Cheryl Dunier, which is the first feature film to be directed by an openly queer black woman. If you want another great stage adaptation to film, check out Mike Nichols' Closer. And if you want to watch something with a younger person in your life or you just want to get involved in a new queer film that is a rom-com and very accessible because it's also on Netflix, I cannot recommend enough the half of it. Oh, I love that movie as well. What a delicious podcast. The menu for today was a starter of The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Then we moved on to a delicious premiere pick, which was our main course of The Boys in the Band. And then we finished with a little dessert with The Queen. Well, that's it for another week. I am full and satisfied. (laughs) (laughs) As am I, even though I can never get my feel of motion pictures. If you are hungry for a little more movie talk from me, you can listen to the podcast I host called Total Reboot, where you talk about reboots, remakes, and rip-offs. And if you're hungry for a little bit more of me, you can go back to the beginning of this podcast and listen to me again. (laughs) Or rewind, listen to it in reverse. Next week on the podcast, we're going to be discussing the Netflix premiere of the week that I am excited for because it stars one of my comedic idols. If it weren't for him, there would be no Alexi. We're talking about Adam Sandler in Hubie Halloween. We'll see you next week. This episode was hosted and written by Alexi Toliopoulos and Susie Youssef. It was produced by Michael Sun and Anu Hasbold, edited by Jeffrey O'Connor, executive produced by Tony Broderick and Melanie Marnie. What a good bunch of eggs. <laughs>